The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, welcome to the first question and answer session with Gail Fransdale, uh, where Gail is going to answer questions from the IMC online community. We're very um, happy to see all the questions that were raised from many places in the world. And uh, today, Gail is going to answer a few of these questions. There may be other sessions where we will answer the remainder of the questions. So we're going to start first with a question from Maria in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And here is her question. She says, I found Gail's material half in a year half in a year ago. I really found it revealing and introduced me to an unknown but intuitable world. Since then I listened to almost all Gail's audios and read many books related. I keep the practice active. The thing is that as I live in Buenos Aires, Argentina, I still find it very difficult to share my daily experience and thoughts with a Sangha in the flesh because I couldn't find a Sangha so far. And I'm starting to feel that it's limiting my experience. And I'm noticing that the issue is entangling my mind. Having heard Gil saying how important it is to have Dharma friends, I just wanted to know if not having them in the flesh could be limiting at some point. I do believe that sharing experience, experiences the way I listened you share at IMC would be priceless, but is it a must? Okay, well that was a wonderful question and uh, I appreciate it. The, um, I think always when people practice Buddhism or practice mindfulness, the idea is to practice with the conditions you have. And uh, conditions are very seldom ideal. And sometimes the less than ideal conditions offer opportunities for different kind of strength. They call on different uh, types of uh, qualities within us to meet those. And so whereas it's very nice to have a Sangha to practice with, have Dharma friends to be able to talk with, uh, it's very helpful. And when those are not available, then uh, it, the challenge of not having that Calls on us to uh, calls on us to use different resources. Some of the resources are within ourselves. Um, in some ways, it can be harder to practice alone, but then it requires us to awaken a stronger determination, stronger intention. Sometimes it's too easy to practice when you're practicing with a lot of other people, and we're carried by the people around us, rather than finding the uh, initiative and the intention within ourselves. And sometimes the people who practice alone are sometimes the ones who develop a really strong, beautiful um, sense of purpose, intention, and value in the practice uh, because they know that uh, they find it in themselves. Um, having said that, though, um, if there is no mindfulness practitioners or Buddhist practitioners in your area, uh, sometimes it's possible to find people of uh, 
uh, other people who uh, share kind of similar values and similar approaches to life. Uh, sometimes it can be other religious people. Uh, and some people will find it valuable uh, to go spend time with the Quakers. The Quakers will sit in silence. That's part of their main practice. And uh, they don't mind if you meditate while they're silent. And they know something about silence. And so it's interesting maybe to talk to them about their experience. Uh, sometimes there are uh, priests, ministers, rabbis, who know a lot about um, the inner life, the contemplative, contemplative life. They might have different vocabulary, different words. But if you're lucky, you can find someone where there's enough overlap that uh, you can share something of yourself with them and uh, share experiences and understanding. Um, so I would look around and see. And, um, and an interesting quest would be to ask in your community, <clears throat> uh, uh, ask the people you think are wise, who are the wisest people they know? Uh, and see uh, if that uh, question will lead you to wiser and wiser people or, or ask them, you know, wh why are they wise? And, um, and try, or ask someone who has been um, voted as the wisest person in your community, ask them what makes them wise. And that very question can uh, maybe draw out some of the shared experiences and value that would help you in your practice. So I wish you well, and i um, delighted that, um, that what we do here in California has meaning in Argentina. Thank you, Gail. So the next question comes from John in South Dakota. He says, My question for Gil will be the one I usually ask myself. This is something like, If I have all of the knowledge regarding Buddhism, meditation, and being in this moment, why is it that I find it so difficult to act out of that knowledge? I have become better and better at meditation with practice. But outside meditation, during everyday life, it seems that even when I know what I should do, how I should act, what I should do with my emotions and actions, it still seems entirely impossible to do as well as I would like to. So it's also a wonderful question, and I think it's a question that's probably shared by almost everyone uh, who practices, that uh, their practice is not going as quickly or as well as they would ideally hope, <clears throat> or that, as the question, as John says, it might be working okay in meditation, but outside of meditation it doesn't seem to translate into practicing or, or a wiser life outside. So I think a lot of people share that. Uh, I think it's uh, very helpful not to be too idealistic. Uh, the uh, people who are idealistic and try too hard sometimes undermine the very practice they're trying to do. Uh, being a perfectionist, uh, not that John is, but being a perfectionist often um, is the, uh, one of the very strong ways to undermine one's practice. Um, practice seems to unfold uh, best if a person is somewhat relaxed about the ideals and just allows it to kind of grow slowly over time. Um, one of the things to always do is to um, not so much focus on the ideal of what you'd like, but rather focus on what stands in the way, and to study what, how you live your life, what goes on in your life, what goes on in your mind, what goes on in your, in your emotional life, that stands in the way and makes it difficult for you to 
uh, bring more mindfulness in daily life and receive some of the benefits of the practice? Is it simple impatience? Or is it uh, doing too many things? Uh, too many projects, too much activity, being too busy uh, can make it difficult. Uh, could it be a lack of confidence in yourself or in the path? Could it be that um, you're attracted to your mind is very strongly has strong desires for other things besides um, practice or meditation or mindfulness? <clears throat> and so you have to look at what your mind is really interested in and evaluate. Sometimes some uh, very serious evaluation, consideration, contemplation, prioritization of our lives is very important. And sometimes what's required in order for practice to work better is to institute uh, behavioral changes in your life, actually change your life in some way so it's more supportive of practice. And it could be as simple as um, after a morning meditation, taking 15 minutes uh, to be somewhat slow in starting up regular life. And so you start your life, maybe make breakfast or do what you need to do, but do it in a way that somehow uh, continu continues the mindfulness practice. Maybe that what you normally do in five minutes after meditation, you take 10 or 15 minutes to do. So you can understand what goes on in your mind. Uh, how does it speed up? What, is it, what are some of the things it, pick, it uh, gets attached to, uh, gets caught by as you start your daily life? So that's a simple behavioral change, to change that you can give yourself 15 minutes after meditation. Sometimes uh, people need to give up uh, some of the things they do, even worthwhile things they do, they do um, because uh, if, if you decide that meditation or mindfulness is more worthwhile, then you maybe have to do less rather than more. Some activities maybe are not so conducive to continuing to practice, and so maybe certain activities have to be given up. One of the prime ones that some people uh, find valuable to give up is watching television. And um, some people watch much more television than they meditate, and they're not, it doesn't really help them. Uh, it wouldn't help them as much as meditation would help them. Or instead of watching television, perhaps uh, doing some reading of Dharma books would be helpful. Uh, now, John, the last thing I'll say, John seems to say that um, uh, he studied a lot, has a lot of knowledge about Buddhism, and, um, and so if he still has time to study, uh, to study less. Uh, one of the beautiful things to do is to maybe read uh, one page of a Dharma book uh, each day, maybe read it a couple of times, and then live with that one page. And if you have normally more time to read, give yourself less time to read, but read that one page. And then uh, start up your day in a, in a, uh, or get involved in your life after reading that page and pause periodically. Maybe pause every 15, 20 minutes for, could it be a two or three minutes, and, um, and take stock. Just notice what's going on for you and see if you can kind of con contemplate what you read and how it might apply to how you're living your life that day. And these periodic pauses uh, through the day in order to contemplate, reflect, reprioritize um, uh, uh, can be very helpful in the integration of practice in daily life. So thank you, John, for the question. So the next question comes from uh, Natalie in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, this is a practice question. She says, My question for Gil is on the topic of procrastination. I was wondering if he had any advice on how to deal with it more skillfully. 
It would be great to have a better understanding of this challenging emotion and shed light on some potential underlying belief patterns that may encourage its growth. It's really great to see people given the opportunity to ask Gail a question. I am from Australia and I have been enjoying and growing from his talks via podcast for several years, often wishing I could attend them in person and have the opportunity to ask questions. So this is opportunity. It's really great. Thank you. Well, and thank you for the question. I think it's a question that uh, probably is shared by many people as well. Um, I think that, again, one of the most useful ways of, of uh, working with procrastination is to look at it uh, carefully and try to understand what's actually going on. Um, and sometimes it's useful to just sit quietly, procrastinate even more, and, um, and um, maybe, maybe try to procrastinate really well, um, get into it. And, uh, and then as you kind of get into it and do it even better, uh, start looking and feeling your way into what's going on inside of you. How does it feel? Uh, what's the emotions that are uh, playing themselves out? Um, uh, what is the beliefs that are playing themselves out in you that uh, leads to procrastination? Is it simple laziness? Is it a lack of confidence in uh, what you want to do? And so you hold back because of that. Is there fear involved? Uh, there can be many different kinds of fear or fear of different things that come into play that limit our engagement uh, in doing what we feel we should do? Um, are we being excessively idealistic and so we think the mountain is too high to climb, so why bother? Or do we feel that uh, we are uh, not up to the task, even if it seems like a small task? Uh, some people procrastinate with spiritual life because they're the only people they know who engaged in a spiritual life or in a Buddhist practice, and so they're concerned and worried about, oh, how other people are going to see uh, them practicing and what they're going to think and or how they're going to be able to relate to their world if um, if they're the only one who's being changed in a particular way. Um, so I'd encourage um, Natalie to procrastinate even better in order to take a better look at what goes on. Uh, if you procrastinate even better, maybe you also see um, the suffering that's part of the procrastination. And sometimes suffering is the very catalyst to help us get out of it. And the last thing I'll say is that um, um, sometimes instead of doing what I just talked about, instead of um, looking at it more deeply and spending time with it and getting to know it, uh, sometimes um, procrastination is best dealt with by uh, very directly and forcefully um, overcoming it. Just if something has to be done, just do it. And um, don't think about it. Don't uh, consider all the issues. And sometimes uh, it's a matter of just doing it for a while to overcome some initial uh, hesitation, initial inertia that might be there. And it's also a very good muscle to develop, the muscle of just doing something when it's time to do it. And do it directly, forthrightly, and, um, and don't hesitate. Um, don't wobble. And... Um, and I find that I found that helpful in my life. Um, there are times where I have something I want to do and or need to do, and then I start wondering: Is this the right time? Uh, maybe I should do it later. Do I need to do it in a different way? Um, you know, there, I see a variety of uh, reasons why I might hold back and hesitate. And sometimes I find it's just a, my life is a lot easier and more straightforward if I know it has to be done. Just do it, and um, and. Uh, 
And then sometimes I find a lot of joy in the acting and the doing. And uh, that joy of in doing uh, is part of what uh, can also overcome the procrastination. So thank you for the question. So the next question is from um, Warren in Hammerwood, in the UK. And he says, I practice twice daily and have been on retreat three times now. However, I find it very difficult to meditate without listening to a guided meditation. Is this wrong? Also, this is not meant to sound harsh in any way, but friends often ask me, what good do monks and nuns do? I often find myself looking for a practical answer to this. Can you help mm-hmm. with metta? Great, good questions. And um, uh, guided meditations can be very helpful because they keep us focused. It's sometimes it's easier to overcome our distractive mind when we're guided uh, and reminded over and over again, stay present, stay connected. Uh, when there's no guided meditation, it can be a lot uh, easier for the mind to wander off and not stay on, on task. On the other hand, when we have guided meditations, then we're not able, uh, we might get calmer quicker and more present quicker, but uh, we're doing it with the help of an outside agent. And sometimes, sooner or later, it's very important to learn to do it on one's own. And if, if that means that a person isn't as deep in their meditation, um, so be it. Because sometimes it's very valuable to really take an honest look at what's actually going on in your mind and what is it that's keeping you from being concentrated or calm. So that if you are, um, um, if, if you're doing a kind of a bypass, a spiritual bypass around what goes on in your mind, your issues, your um, anxieties, your preoccupations, uh, then you won't actually address them. And they'll come back and um, and and uh, have an impact on your life. And sometimes it's a lot better to just sit with the agitation of the mind, the business of the mind, and work through it, to be present for it, uh, settle it directly by looking at it and being present, um, than it is to uh, use an external help to do it. I sometimes say that if you're new to meditation, and sometimes it's helpful to kind of get into the swing with some guided meditation. Um, or if you're really anxious, or if you have, you know, some people when they go in for surgery find that that's a really good time to have a guided meditation um, tape with them. Uh, so there are times when it's useful, but sooner or later, I strongly encourage people to do it on their own and, um, and uh, face up to what's going on and work through it. Um, so in terms of the question, is it wrong to use guided meditation? No, it's not wrong. But it uh, sometimes it's not as beneficial as if we uh, avoid using it. So in terms of the monks and nuns, um, there are many, many different types of monks and nuns. I mean, or there's so many different kinds of people. And uh, there are some monks and nuns who um, actually don't do much. If you go to places like Thailand, occasionally you'll find monks and nuns who are there because in, the, in the monastery because it's you know relatively comfortable life and they don't have to go to work, and and uh, they sit around a lot. So uh, that that can happen. Um, the great majority of monks and nuns are doing lots of good for their society. Uh, one uh, that is held up a lot is that they're uh, examples of a life that's dedicated to purifying the mind and the heart. 
um, as opposed to a life that uh, perpetuates and continues um, our greed, hate, and delusion, our attachments, our clinging, our fear, and our kind of damage we can create in the world when we act on those things. And so um, the monastic uh, community uh, lives a life that is meant to exemplify freedom from the common delusions, common attachments that people have. And um, I've sometimes been very inspired by some monastics who live that way and uh, live a pure life that way. And it's, I feel like it's shown me a possibility for me in my life. I don't have to become a monastic, but I can certainly uh, purify my heart and mind in similar ways. In addition, there are monks and nuns who teach, uh, not only who teach uh, Buddhism and teach meditation and all the benefits that come from that, but in many countries like in Thailand and Burma, um, the monks can be involved in community life in the village. Uh, the monastery is a community center. The abbot is, or abbess is a um, mediator in the community, supports people. Um, monasteries can be places where uh, people who um, are in trouble in a variety of ways can go and find refuge. Um, the poor will often come there for food and sometimes for lodging. Orphans can stay there. Sometimes uh, monasteries pro- have provided schools uh, for uh, local kids. And um, not so much anymore now that medicine has changed, but it used to be that uh, the primary source of uh, medical care in villages was through the monastics uh, who were trained in the local lore and were trying to support people. Um, so the answer is it depends on the monk and the nun. Uh, some monks and nuns uh, do a tremendous amount of good in the world and, um, and uh, in all the w- different ways that anybody could do it. And some of them occasionally, um, you know, don't do much at all. Okay, so the next question uh, comes from Terry in Rushden, uh, UK. So Terry's question is, regarding... Gil's kind offer to answer questions. I would like to raise this issue. I often wonder if at my age, 64, I am too old and too late to practice, knowing that the spiritual journey is a long and difficult one, according to Ajahn Chah, at least. So I would be interested to know of any advice from Gil or of any of the Buddha's teachings on the matter, as I am not aware of any. For now, I try to content myself with doing the best I can and telling myself that I can only be where I am in life and in my practice. This question issue should be of interest to other IMC members and audio Dharma listeners who are coming to the Dharma late in life. Wonderful question. Thank you, Terry. And um, yeah, I think it should be interesting for many people. The... Um, um, here, in, here, at least in America, in the United States, uh, it seems that the uh, average age for a Vipassana practitioner is about 50. And um, I've often wondered why it's that, that's the case. Um, 30, years, 30, 30 years ago, the average age was closer to 20, and slowly, uh, or 25 or 30. And uh, slowly over the years, it, uh, the age has gone up. Now it seems to be stabilized for a good number of years that the average age is about 50. And uh, I don't know the reasons for that, but uh, all the reasons. Uh, some of them have to do with cultural reasons, that 30, 40 years ago there was you know, the counterculture in America, and uh, that brought a lot of interest in alternative uh, uh, approaches to life and to meditation and Eastern religion. Uh, 
But I think also um, in uh, uh, many people uh, are too busy when they're younger to spend a lot of time uh, devoted to spiritual life. If they're starting a career or starting a family, it's hard to do it. And by the time some people reach 50, they've kind of uh, on the other side of that. And they're ready to look at um, some of the deeper existential issues of their life, to look at a spiritual life and have time for it and be motivated for it. And sometimes uh, seeing a death um, um, the, at the horizon, seeing that uh, one's life is uh, finite, uh, can be very motivating in terms of getting one's priorities um, uh, reorganized and um, very motivating in order to, to engage in deeper spiritual life or deeper approach to some of the existential issues of uh, sickness, old age, and death. So as people get older, some people find they're much more motivated. And that strong motivation uh, can actually help uh, their practice. Also, some people who are older have a certain kind of maturity and a capacity for resolve and self-knowledge that uh, makes it a lot easier to practice than when you're younger. There are some ways easier to practice when you're younger and some some ways easier when you're older. Um, uh, both have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, when I was in Burma, uh, practicing with Upandita, uh, he would often tell stories of people who came to meditation uh, quite late in life. Uh, he was quite proud of, a, I think it was a colleague of his, who I think came to start meditation when he was in his 60s. And... Um, and practiced diligently and seriously. And then by the time he was, uh, I think, uh, 80, he became a teacher. And, uh, and he became a well-respected teacher for uh, about 10 years. And then he had a stroke. And, um, and then he used the mindfulness practice, especially doing a lot of walking meditation, to recover from his stroke. Um, the story was that um, he'd have two younger monks who would walk next to him, holding him up, because he couldn't stand up by himself. And they would do walking meditation back and forth, back and forth. And then by the time he was about 95, he started teaching again. Um, in the time of the Buddha as well, there were uh, uh, people who came to the monastic life and to spiritual life quite late in life. Um, so um, I think that um, rather than focusing on the challenges of uh, practicing late in life, I think I should pro uh, focus on just doing it the best one can with the conditions one has. Um, yes, sometimes spiritual journeys seem to be long and difficult, but sometimes it's also seen to be uh, easy and immediate. And I like to teach both. I like to teach that um, uh, it's very important uh, when a person does mindfulness practice to both have a sense of a goal that one can work towards, greater freedom, greater compassion, greater uh, depth of insight, that grows over time, but at the same time, to have a very deep appreciation that a moment of mindfulness is complete in itself. And a moment of mindfulness of being here and now, just now, there's a kind of uh, complete, completeness that happens here. Um, a moment of mindfulness is a non-reactive moment where just the simplicity of this moment is enough in itself. Um, it's, uh, there's no need to have it any different. And there's something very deeply satisfying about that moment of mindfulness that's complete in itself. When we string these moments of mindfulness together, over time, <clears throat> they put us on a path that leads us to uh, spiritual growth, puts us on a journey. But um, uh, I hope that people who practice mindfulness 
uh, find um, tremendous value just in being mindful for this day. And uh, they never regret having been mindful for this day. And even if it doesn't go anywhere, in terms of a longer journey, uh, it's a very satisfying and meaningful to have, have uh, practice for this day, or for this hour, for this minute. And, um, <clears throat> and, um, and no need to be anxious about uh, uh, how far or how well we're going to do. So I hope that uh, is encouraging, and I hope that Terry um, uh, engages as fully in the practice as is inspired to do. Thank you, Gil. Uh, the next question um, is about anxiety, uh, and it comes from High in <coughs> Sydney, Australia, and it's part two of his question. It relates to a comment on one of your talks on the fear topic that many, many years ago you were very much worried and concerned about what other people thought about you. I would be grateful if you could give me some tips on how to be free from this type of fear or anxiety. Oh, what helped me a lot, uh, the first thing that really helped a lot was... Um, uh, suffering because of this and um, suffering is a great teacher and a great motivator and so it wasn't until I saw the extent of how much I was suffering because of my anxiety that um, I finally decided to do something about it or decided that it wasn't worth it and um, uh, until I saw the suffering enough um, I was kind of you know kind of believing it or just went along with it and was kind of tolerant of it and so one of the ways of suffering better, to, you know, in a, in a helpful way, is to pay more attention to it and to notice how it operates in our life and notice what limitations it does until um, you know it so well that you're properly fed up with it. And um, it seems like an odd teaching, but um, uh, and an odd thing I'm about to say, but some people just simply don't get fed up enough with their anxieties and fears and they give it too much authority. And uh, so getting to know it, becoming more familiar with it. One interesting way of helping you get fed up with it earlier is to uh, talk, talk to other people about it. Uh, if you have good friends that you can um, not um, burden them with your problems, but just kind of uh, acknowledge or confess uh, your issues when they come up and have a good laugh about it. Or, or um, yeah, just to try to, to hold it lightly and laugh about it and and not see it as a heavy, um, a personal fault that there's anxiety or fear what people think about you, um, but maybe even make, uh, make make light of it, make fun of it. And sometimes by talking about it with other people that way uh, can help this the healthy process of getting fed up and having enough of it and, and losing the hold it has on us, the power it has on us. The other thing that can be helpful is to have to know an alternative to anxiety and fear and uh, concern about other people. And meditation is one of those alternatives to, to really develop your meditation practice well and develop a sense of well-being that's not dependent on what other people think of you. That sense of well-being can be a reference point and a, a reminder that you can be happy and feel, you know, feel peaceful without, um, irregardless of what people think of you. Uh, you, can, you can always assume that there will be people who will think poorly of you. Uh, 
that's part and parcel of life. And, um, and always be people who think maybe well of you. And, and you, we can't orchestrate what other people are going to think about us, but we can free ourselves from the concern from it. And meditation is one of the things that helped me a lot and for me to realize that the sense of uh, beingness, aliveness, peace, that was really independent of what other people thought. And then I can carry that with me into the, lo- into the world, not to be aloof from what people think, but to be free of it, and and um, and at the same time, uh, more aware or sensitive to uh, to the inner life of other people, so I can have more compassion, understanding of what motivates them, as they might be judging uh, me. So um, I hope that helpful, and um, it's a great, wonderful task to overcome um, the anxiety of what other people think of you. Okay, so this is the end of our question and answer for today, for this month. And uh, we'll hold another one next month. So please uh, be tuned and the talk should be up on the site uh, very soon, in the next few days. By the time you hear this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gil. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you everyone for the questions.